Good evening, everyone. Um, do do please let me know if my voice ever. I mean, make some something like that if my voice of doesn't reach uh, where you are. The overall theme of this uh, weekend retreat is practicing during difficult times. And I'm really very directly referring to times that many of us are finding very difficult in the aftermath of the November 2nd election. It's certainly difficult for those of us who really didn't want to embark in what we seem to be embarking anyway, namely an endless war, namely uh, a relentless assault on, on uh, civil liberties. And I find that this is uh, particularly difficult for anybody regardless of how we voted on November 2nd because we'll all have to bear the brunt of what's coming. Bear the brunt and the responsibility of being the great superpower determined to rule the world and determined to suppress those who declare our enemies. It's tough. It's tough to be in either side of this equation. Like any difficult situation, it's also a situation that offers tremendous opportunities. Opportunities to learn. Having fallen into a hole, I feel, it's an opportunity to learn how to get out of it. And so, this is what inspires my talks during this weekend. It's uh, three talks that are interlocked. Today's talk, the title of today's talk is Fabricating Reality. Tomorrow's is opening to the depth of being. And on Sunday, I plan to talk about engaging with the world. So this very ambitious project, as you can see. So, today's talk, Fabricating Reality.
as I was planning this talk, I began to wonder, what would the Buddha have said about November 2nd? I can only guess, of course, actually. And my guess is that whatever he would have said would be based on his most essential teaching, which is a teaching in the language of the Buddha called Paticca Samuppada, which is translated as variously as dependent origination, as dependent arising, or codependent arising, or codependent co-arising. However, you've heard it. So, let me go over that central teaching of the Buddha, which I'm sure you've heard it in one or another version. It's um, presented as a sequence of steps, things that happen to us. And, and the initial basis for this sequence, as the Buddha says, is ignorance. So, based in ignorance, we react the following way. Reaction is, of course, the moment we have a, a sensation. And the sensation is described by the Buddha as a, a, an object, a sense object, call it, coming in contact with our consciousness. And the sense can be, of course, any of the five senses, and also the the Buddha calls the sixth sense, which is contact with the contents of our own mind. So it's seeing, tasting, smelling, touching. Um, hearing. Or contact with the contents of the mind. When the contact occurs, the, the first following step is what in the language of the Buddha is called Vedana. And it's often translated as feeling, but I think it's an inappropriate translation. It's mostly evaluation. Because there's only three alternatives offered to us by this evaluation of the contact. The three alternatives are pleasant, unpleasant or in between. And the next step will depend on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If it's pleasant, it's craving followed by clinging to. If it's unpleasant, it's aversion followed by pushing away. And if it's in between, Basically, we get turned off. We don't care. Skip it. It's, let's wait for the next sort of thrill that comes our way. 
And so, now what's the next step after clinging or pushing away? And the Buddha says is becoming. Becoming. Becoming, which means immediately the birth of the I, the birth of our identity. The I takes over. The I begins to run our show. Whether it's because we like this, we want it, and the I emerges from that process, or because we don't want it, and again another I emerges from that process. But this I that we've created by this, this me that we've created by this, is, is very unstable. It's not really very reliable. The, the sense object that uh, has generated it is impermanent, will go away, will disappear. What do we do next? Well, next we could either cling harder desperately not to let it go, or quickly start another search for another object that will generate the eye. Going back a little bit to each one of the steps, the major steps, contact. In the modern world, the typical contact is in shopping. We see an object that I want. Of course, there are other things. We see a person of a, you know, sexually attractive wholesome. That's another area. But, but, okay. The craving and clinging. We, we may think that this object is so important. What is this object that we cannot be without it? I'm always amazed looking at the collection of things that my, most of my grandchildren, of eight of them, have. And, you know, after, after a very short time, they don't give a damn about all those things that were so vital for them. And they give them away or throw them away. Because it wasn't the thing. It was the I that came as the result of the thing. One way of, of dramatizing this is to think of a fisherman. Sure, people go fishing, and after they get home, they cook the fish, some of the fish, and they eat it. That's not why they go fishing. They go fishing, particularly real fishermen, because they want to get a picture taken of themselves next to this huge fish. That epitomizes the eye as a result of, of the 
craving for something. Actually, you can think of many other examples like that. Now, there's another aspect of this I didn't go into. Well, I mentioned it a little bit. The, the birth of the eye means that the eye takes over. The eye t taking over means that it becomes very vigilant that it doesn't disappear. So it becomes intent of so turning our mind, revving our mind up so more and more stuff would be wanted or pushed away, if that's the case. More demands would be made upon the world in order to, again, keep building up the eye. The Buddha called that papancha. Papancha means mental proliferation. So our mind revs up, keeps thinking. And in that mental pro proliferation creates more intensive images of who we are, basically. And of course, the same thing for things that we don't want, that we hate, that we need to push away, our enemies. People, say, in the office who've said something nasty to us. And uh, we cannot forget it. It keeps revving up in our mind. And our antipathy with that person, again, gives it an incredible boost to who we are. And so, that's the point of the thing. And, and we do that not because we are bad persons. It's just because it's the only way we know to create an appearance of safety around ourselves. By hook or crook, we must create an identity of me, I. Well, this in the Buddha's time was playing out very much in the individual sphere. In the world today, it becomes inevitably also a social, collective game of identity creation. Um, the wanting an object is very often not just to have the object, but to become a member of a group. It's been made very clear. Madison Avenue people know very well how to exploit this wish to be member of a group by what we drink, 
particularly beer, but other things as well. Oh, yes, all kinds of soft drinks as well, of course. They determine who we are. And again, I can see that very well and, and people close to me and, uh, and how we dress. See that in grandchildren very clearly. So, what movies we see, it's so important to go and see a movie, movie when it first shows. Why? Because it's a social exercise. We create a social identity through that. But the really more insidious collective construction of I comes from the political arena. The dependent origination sequency sequence could be rewritten in, in the contemporary world as based on gullibility, our consciousness makes contact with an item in the media. Say, a story about terrorism, dangers, whatever. From that contact, we have a reaction, pleasant or un unpleasant or in between. If it's pleasant, we want it. We want to win the war, whatever. If it's unpleasant, we, we have an aversion for it. And we push it away. And in the modern world, world, not only push it away, but bomb it away, actually. So it's happening now. And again, an I comes up, but the I that comes up is really a we. We, the rulers, we, the victims, we, the chosen ones, if you wish. And so we adopt this collective role, we wrap it around ourselves, and from now on, our well-being, who we are, depends on how that role unfolds. So many of us can very easily be tremendously depressed and disappointed by the results of the recent elections, for instance, and feel done for by that. And so we emerge as victims. Looking at this a, a little more, of course, it's very easy to 
manipulate because uh, if the item in question is something in the media, we know very well that media is owned by people with a variety of interests, so um, yes, do you have a Yeah. And so, whether it is the information turned out to be false about weapons of mass destruction or information about connections between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, again, apparently false information, but that reaches us and the whole thing unfolds on the basis of that information. The doctoring of the news by the spin doctors has, um, has gotten to, to a, a rather unprecedented stage. I was interested to read a few weeks ago an, an article in the New York Times magazine by Ron Suskind. Let me just share a little bit with you. In the summer of 2002, after I had written an article in Esquire that the White House didn't like about Bush's former communications director, Karen Hughes, I had a meeting with a senior advisor to Bush. He expressed the White House displeasure. And then he told me something that at that time I didn't fully comprehend, but which, now, which I now believe gets to the very heart of the Bush presidency. The aide said that guys like me were, quote, in what we call the reality-based community, unquote, which he defined as people who, quote, believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality, uh, unquote. I nodded and murmured something about enlightenment principles and empiricism. He cut me off, off, quote, that's not the way the world, world really works anymore, he continued. We are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you are studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We are history actors, and you, all of you, will be left to study what we do.
You know, it's a very clear declaration that reality doesn't matter at all and that can be fabricated. At least for them. Of course, going down that road is exactly what the other guy in this equation, Osama bin Laden, did. It's absolutely true. After Osama bin Laden, reality will never be the same. So, we, we live in a world that's totally manipulable. And we need to be aware of that and not let that capture us in our attempts to create our sense of who we are. Because it's so easy to trap us, trap us in that. On, on both sides of the fence, I must say. On the on the ruler side, we the ruler, or on the victim side, we the victims. We the martyrs, as it's playing out very much in the Middle East. And of course, there are also those who take advantage of this situation, use this situation. The architects of this fake reality. They can get practical benefits galore, of course, in money, in position, and also, they can inflate their egos incredibly. Just, just notice Bush's new body language has changed in the last couple of months. Month. So, it is very important not to be sucked in by this various dependent origination sequence, sequences that are depend upon our ignorance, depend upon our gullibility, depend upon us buying on this fabricated depend also upon us believing that in order to feel safe and complete we need to get something from the outside whether it's the latest uh, pair of shoes or whether it's uh, 
an identity as a member of the ruling class. We need to find an alternative to that. Otherwise we'll, we'll be cut over and over again by all these things engineered from the outside by Madison Avenue executives or by the neocons of Mr. Bush or, or, or whatever other government comes along. Can we instead for, for our solace, for our well-being, turn to a place where our lives unfold organically. Because, you know, with the things from the outside, there's no, no guarantee, no safety, it's just... Uh, just an invention. We invent our allegiances and we invent our enemies. How about disinventing our enemies? How about disinventing our enemies? You know, this is a very extraordinary experience in, in personal lives too. Sometimes you run into somebody and this person is so darn difficult on board. And she says, he says all these horrendous things about us. And then something happens. There's a conversation about this at, at dinner today. Something happens and this person is not at all that uh, enemy that we thought they were. And we can go back into our hearts and rediscover that this is a person. And the same thing we need to do in, in the political arena. Not get caught in these divisions. Which doesn't mean, of course, not having an understanding of what goes on. But not to personalize it. Not to have to go and bomb somebody, whether it's in Iraq or next door. What then? What then if we are not grasping onto this, pushing that away, or not caring? on the political arena, what if we, if not becoming the champion of war, or even becoming the champion of peace, becoming, that's a, you know, being for peace in order to become something. Or as somebody was saying uh, last Wednesday in our group, the third alternative, being indifferent. He said, after November 2nd, 
I buried my head in the sand. How about stopping, putting an end to using the political process to fabricate and refabricate ourselves? And, and no matter around what noble positions this is done, and, and not in this talk questioning the positions so much as the need to, to fabricate ourselves around it. That's basically the topic of tomorrow, how to do that. Tonight I, I will continue to say a, f a few more things about the, what the dependent origination sequence leads us to this identity. It really leads us to becoming imprisoned. It lands us in a box. A box of how we define ourselves. It, it's a prison, although we may look at it as a success if, if it's successful, you know. I'm worn. I, I'm with the winning party in this election, you know, or whatever. At least a senator from New York got elected, whatever. It's very important that the right people be elected, no question. But why use that to fabricate who I am? That's really the key. We get caught in this self, self cultivation. This is something from Turning Wheel a few months ago. Um, in contemporary Western culture, nearly everything is designed to appeal to individual self-interest. We go off to our high-pressure jobs in the morning and deposit our kids in daycare. Our closest friends and relatives may live thousands of miles away. If a problem arises, we are expected to handle it ourselves. Material success is prized. Compassion often is not. In fact, people who give generously of themselves may be regarded as losers and penalized for their behavior. That degree of isolation does not seem to work well for us as a species. In the hunter-gatherer societies from which we evolved, families lived in close proximity to one another. Babies were carried on the mother, mother's back. Work was done collectively with the understanding that what benefited the group as a whole benefited the individual. There was plenty of time in the day for laughter, touch, an intimate conversation. Those things are largely absent from our lives. If they continue to exist, 
in less developed parts of the world. The Dalai Lama has repeatedly observed that despite the poverty and hardship they endure, Tibetans are by and large happier than the materially wealthy Western counterparts. Just a little window to understand that, that there are alternatives. There are alternatives to investing in our box. Investing, by the way, comes from the Latin to vestire, to dress. In other words, is to get into a vestment, to get into a garment. And at times, it's almost to get into an armor. And that isolates us. That's what the, this text has said was this important because it says we're isolating ourselves by this process of fabricating who we are. Even the collective fabrication of who we are offers very little warmth and connection. We find ourselves, in fact, constantly guarding our boundaries. Guarding our boundaries. Our physical and emotional territory. Um, I think it's about a month ago I went to a, a gathering of uh, hospice volunteers, as I am a volunteer. And the topic was boundaries. So uh, it's a very common topic of discussion among hospice volunteers and so the leader said and I took some notes so I can quote her she said if we don't have boundaries we burn down and it's understandable once we get into that mode of working within a box we don't have a the skills to work with an open heart. And here are a few other things that uh, volunteers said. One guy said, I avoid getting emotionally attached so I don't grieve too much. And this fits so well with the I don't care kind of alternative in the dependent origination. It's not, I don't, it's not pleasant or unpleasant, it's in between, so I don't care. I get used, sorry, I get upset when people says something that crosses a boundary. So there's a tremendous vulnerability there. As soon as somebody says something that doesn't fit into the scheme of the box, we are in trouble. And we feel it, and understandably. And uh, the last quote from a volunteer. I now do mostly phone visits. I no longer 
wish to give my all or else there's nothing left for me. Very honest and realistic assessment, but look at where we've gotten ourselves to. Look at the separation that is implied by that statement. So let me just uh, offer a, a, a little bit of a glimpse of what I will talk about tomorrow, which is the way out of this box of separation. Just, just to be aware that one, one way to get out of it is the practice, the sitting and the walking. It becomes an opportunity to see through this charade of dependent origination, of I-making, of we-making. To see ourselves, or our minds actually, fall into that charade and get caught. And side by side with that, there is an opportunity to get a taste, even a fleeting taste, of a dimension of being that transcends the identification with me, with us. But that transcends these very petty options, three options of grasping, pushing away, or not giving it. From this taste, a whiff of a, a whiff of fresh and unfiltered air can come to us. And it comes from the depth of our being. And it can touch us. It's simple.